Our reading this evening is from Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. That's page 973 in the Church Bibles. It's Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowds saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Thanks, Lisa, for reading. Good evening. Let me pray before we start. <clears throat> Father in heaven, please would you speak to us this evening through your blessed holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. A man is on his knees for months it feels like his life is falling apart. He's stressed, burdened, unhappy. After a period of mourning the death of his mother, among other things, his career has just hit its first challenge, which in turn is having a huge impact on his finances and his ability to support his family, a family that he loves dearly. But recently he's felt there's been a distance between him and his wife and kids. And no matter what he tries to fill his life with, he isn't happy, and he just feels like there's something missing. But he's got no idea what it is. And having finally got on a well-deserved holiday, which in truth he really can't afford, he has just watched his son have an accident, which, albeit, it's not too serious, but it will have an impact on what was supposed to be a dream trip and the break that they all needed. And as he sits there, literally on his knees, head in hands, feeling as low as he's ever felt, he looks to the heavens and says, Jesus, please help me. Now we're going to come back to that man a little bit later. But what is it we think that that man wanted of Jesus? Now, on the outside looking in, I think it seems quite obvious. He wanted Jesus to fix his problems and the stress they were causing. 
And I don't think that's uncommon of, of asking of Jesus, is it? Whether we're at the beginning of our Christian journey or if we've been a Christian for decades. Coming to Jesus in faith and trusting that he can help us is right. And it's something that Jesus commends. As we saw last week, as John preached part one from this short series on the works of the king from Matthew's chapter eight and nine. In these two chapters, we see Jesus bringing the kingdom that he taught on the mountain. And he's bringing that kingdom now into reality as Matthew recounts nine stories of how Jesus reveals God's power and love to hurting, broken, desperate people as he confronts evil, death, and disease by performing miraculous miracles. And as we saw last week, many turn to Jesus in faith as they see his power and authority and as he works in their lives. But as we hit chapter 9 and this story of the paralysed man, Matthew, and more importantly Jesus, is revealing something more, something staggering, something life-changing, and the most significant part of his work and mission as he proclaims the kingdom to the people. So let's jump into the narrative. It's a fantastic story, and it's a true story. Now, Jesus has just come back to Capernaum. This is his hometown, and clearly news has been spreading of what has been happening across the region and what he's been doing. And we get the sense across these two chapters that wherever Jesus goes, there's a crowd. People are curious. They're intrigued. They want to see this man for themselves. And in some ways, he's like a celebrity. And every time a celebrity comes to town, news gets around fast. Even 2,000 years ago, no phones, no social media, word of mouth would spread very quickly in these dusty streets. Everyone would know Jesus is back. So crowds gather just to get a glimpse of this man. And as Jesus enters the scene, a group of men bring him a paralysed man on a mat in verse 2. Not a scene that we would expect to see on the high street, is it? But not uncommon in Israel. And due to this man's disability we would surmise this is a man of poverty confined to a life of survival. And there he is, set in front of Jesus. Now, I want us to pause there for a moment. We can feel the tension, can't we? What are the crowd thinking? Now, I think there would be three camps of people here. Number one, we will have those that... Excuse me. We have those that have rushed to see Jesus and to see if these rumours are true of what he's been doing. But they would be nervous and wouldn't really have any expectations because they're not sure what's going to happen. In the second camp, we'd have the camp of sceptics, like the teachers of the law, just waiting for Jesus to fail and to do nothing and prove that these rumours are exactly that and exaggerated stories. And in the last camp, we would have completely the opposite. Those that have not only heard the stories, they may even have witnessed previous miracles, and are thinking to themselves, I know exactly what's going to happen next. We're going to see something amazing. Jesus is going to open his mouth, 
and a miracle is about to happen. But what about the paralysed man himself? Is he thinking, in a few minutes, I could be healed? Can this man, this teacher, Jesus, really make me walk? Is Jesus going to fix all of my problems? Well, it seems like his friends think that, don't they? After all, they've gone to all this effort to make sure that he has an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus himself recognises their faith, as recorded there in verse 2. So the scene is set. Everyone is waiting on tender hooks. But what happens next completely takes everyone by surprise. There it is in verse 2. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. What? Of all the things to happen, what Jesus says is certainly not what the crowd are expecting. And these words, they cause quite a stir, particularly with the teacher of the law who accused Jesus of blasphemy. Verse 3, this fellow is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. But Jesus responds by setting what seems like the impossible task. Verse 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? It's the perfect response from Jesus. As everyone listening, particularly the teacher of the law, would know only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus heals this man then surely it shows he is working under the authority of God by performing a miracle. But as we will see shortly, what happens next shows more than Jesus just being a prophet. Verse 6. Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man stood up and went home. Just like that. It's an incredible scene. And as the crowds watch on and start to disperse, what must they be thinking? They've just seen a miracle, but they have been left with a huge conundrum. What did Jesus mean? And why and how did this man forgive the paralysed man's sins? Well, Matthew records that Whatever the crowd are thinking in their probable confusion, verse 8, they are in awe and praise God. They recognise God's hand in this miracle and that Jesus has authority. Now, this is a truly amazing account of an amazing miracle. But at its heart, Jesus is making a claim. A claim about himself a claim about who he is and what he's come to do. Verse 2, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. And this claim has a huge significance for all of us. And I want us to look at this claim in three elements before we conclude what this claim means for us. Firstly, we see that this is a big claim. Verse 2. 
Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, as we read these nine miracles in these two chapters, it is only this account that has the mention of sin. And there is quite a focus on it, so I think we need to focus on that as well. Now, many of us know the Bible teaches that that in the beginning, when the first humans, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and went against his good and loving rule in their life, that was the point that sin entered the world and the curse was announced. The world and the human race was, from this point, contaminated. Every single one of us is affected. We are all sinners. And this manifests itself in the way we think, we act, and how we treat each other. The human existence is characterised by pain, conflict, disease, and death. But it is very important that doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean that one person who has, a dis- who has a disability, like the man in our story, it doesn't mean that he's a bigger sinner than from someone who doesn't suffer in this way. It doesn't work like that. But it is just a simple fact of life that at some level we all suffer illness, that we all have pain of one sort or another, major, some of us major and chronic pain, We all experience suffering at some level and that eventually we're all going to die. Due to sin, death now reigns where life was created. And all sickness and disease, physical or mental, is part of this dying. Death is ultimately the consequence of our rebellion against our creator who gave us life. Because at its core, sin, and all sin, is against God. And the teachers of the law, and the majority of the crowd in this story, would have been well versed on this. So when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, he's not just saying that he has permission from God to forgive sins. No, Jesus is claiming to be divine. He is claiming to be God himself. A few weeks ago, um, I was in the car park with my wife, Lorraine, and um, she accidentally ran over my foot with her car. Twice. (laughs) Now, she got out and apologised, and eventually, after I hopped around like a... and stopped crying, um, I, I forgave her. And only I could have forgiven her for that accidental act, couldn't I? Because it was my foot. Me. No one else could have forgiven her for that. So we cannot miss what Jesus is claiming here. He is saying, I can forgive this man's sin because ultimately his sin is against me. I'm the one that he's rejected. I am the one that he sinned against. So I and I alone have the, have the authority to forgive him. And to those listening, this is outrageous. And let's be honest, if we were there, we would probably think the same thing. How is this possible? How can this man say that? What evidence does he have? How can he prove it? Yeah, okay, he's done some amazing things, but this is too much. He's claiming to be God. And that is exactly why the teacher of the law say he's blaspheming. 
But I believe this is why Jesus didn't just heal this man straight away like in the previous miracles. Because Jesus is revealing that the promised Messiah from the Old Testament who would come and rescue his people from their sins is here. God himself is the Messiah in the person of his son, Jesus. So the conundrum that Jesus set, what is easier, get up and walk or forgive this man's sins? We now see why. Surely there can be no doubt that if this man does the impossible and walks at the command of Jesus, this means that the words that Jesus speaks are true and that his sins are forgiven too. Confirmation that Jesus acts with the full authority of God because he is God. A huge, massive claim. And surely this miracle in itself proves it to be true. And the people bow down, worship him, praise God. God is among us. But we know throughout the gospel accounts and Jesus' ministry in Israel that sadly... That isn't the case. And many, hardened by sin, reject the truth of this claim that Jesus makes. And this has been the case across the centuries. Many do not put their faith in Jesus. So we've got a big claim. Secondly, we also have an important claim. We may ask the question, why is Jesus' priority to forgive the man's sin before he heals him? To us and the crowd, it's odd. The man can't walk. He's probably in pain. He's probably starving. He's suffering. But Jesus knows that ultimately this man's eternal future is his biggest problem. And more important than his physical healing in the here and now. His need of forgiveness is where it's at. As we've already mentioned, sin carries a punishment, a consequence, an eternity without God. We will all face his wrath and his judgment because of our rejection. And in verse 6, Jesus continues to prove his claim of authority to forgive sins by using the title Son of Man to refer to himself. And to understand the importance and significance of that title, we need to think about what that title means. And the best place to go um, for that is to Daniel 7. Now, we haven't got time to go there now, but in that passage, Daniel has a prophetic vision from God. And he says, He saw one like a son of man coming from the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, in the vision, and was given absolute authority over all creation so that all people would worship him. Now, these details are significant in this description. This son of man is clearly deity, if the whole world is going to worship him. And as deity, he can do the works of a deity, including the forgiveness of sins. But according to the vision of Daniel, he is coming in the clouds, which in the Bible is evidence of divine judgment. If he is coming with judgment to establish the kingdom of righteousness, 
He has the authority as judge of the whole world to pardon or condemn. So on both counts, the prophecy of the Son of Man is further proof of Jesus' claim and shows that as Messiah, he has the authority to forgive sins. And one day, all of us will face this judgment. And that time is coming. Jesus has already hinted to it in the previous chapter. And if we are all guilty of sin, then forgiveness of sin becomes the single most important aim of our life. So we must take heed of the claim that Jesus, the Son of Man, makes and trust him. So a big claim, an important claim, and finally, a costly claim. Verse 5. Jesus says, which is easier? Let's think about that. What would have been easier? If Jesus had just healed the man, and that was it, what might have happened? Round of applause? People in amazement? Wonder? His celebrity status would have grown? People would certainly want to be around him and thinking, wow, what can you do for me? Jesus could have used his divine power for his own advantage. That's what we see in the world today, isn't it? Powerful men and women using their power for their own good. Jesus came from glory. So why not have glory here on earth? A palace, riches, adoration. But no. Jesus came from glory in obedience to his father to be a suffering servant, just like we heard this morning. And because of his claims to be the Messiah... Jesus was rejected by the very people he came to save. Yes, he preached a wonderful kingdom of love and forgiveness that is open to everyone. But those that want entry to to that kingdom must recognise that there can only be one king. There can't be two. So we must take off our crowns of self-love and importance and rebellion against our maker and submit to the one and only true king. But the sinful heart says no. So Jesus is rejected. And as we zoom out and look at the life of Jesus, we see rejection by his own people and even betrayal by his friends. We see an evil plan to kill him, which culminates in a cruel, unjust, painful painful death as Jesus is tortured and then hung on a cross like a criminal. Did it cost Jesus to make this claim? I think we know the answer, don't we? But it's deeper than that, much deeper. We will never know, never will we know the spiritual pain that Jesus suffered as he hung on that cross. Jesus felt the full wrath of his father's righteous and just anger against our sin. And he did that for you, and he did it for me. What did this claim cost Jesus? Well, it cost him everything. Yes, it was all part of the sovereign plan of God, 
And yes, Jesus did willingly fulfil that plan in perfect obedience to his Father, as only Jesus was capable as the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb who could be the substitute for the sins of the entire world. Did it cost Jesus to make this claim? Yes. But we now need to put all this together. Jesus has made a big, important, costly claim about himself. And I am convinced that his life, death and resurrection proves that this is not a claim, but it's a fact. Jesus is God, the Messiah, the one who can and has forgiven us of our sins if we trust him. And as we look at these two chapters together and consider those that put their faith in Jesus, I ask myself this question. Did they recognise Jesus for who he really is? Or were they not quite sure? Yes, they saw he's a good man, a man that can be trusted, a man that teaches amazing things about God, a wise teacher, a compassionate, kind and loving man, and even a man who does amazing things. But do they see Jesus for who he really is? And perhaps as you listen this evening, maybe that's where you are currently at. And maybe you're not quite sure. At the beginning of this sermon, I told you about another man. As I told his story, I asked the question, what was it this man begged of Jesus? Well, I can tell you what this man begged of Jesus, because that man was me. I cried out to Jesus to take away all of my stress and pain that I was suffering in my life. I didn't know at the time, but I was on a journey and had been finally humbled and brought to my knees to ask for help. And Jesus powerfully revealed himself to me. And my son's injury was healed instantly. I'd seen a miracle, but deep in my heart, I knew it was more than that, and I, I needed to know more. So after a few um, one-to-one meetings with a, with a Christian, my sin was laid before me, and I saw that the heart of my pain and my problems was my love of self and my rejection of God. And I mentioned to you earlier that there was something missing in my life. Yeah, it was God. I recognised, finally, that what I'd been made for, to be in relationship with my maker. And when I finally realised that was my biggest problem, that was my biggest problem, not my earthly stresses and worries, when I realised that truth, I crumbled. And I said to myself, well, now what? deserve nothing. I don't deserve grace. I deserve to be rejected for who I've been for the majority of my life. But instead, I met a saviour. I met the Lord Jesus. The same Jesus who these crowds met. And the same Jesus that offers his forgiveness to all of those who come to him. That is what we all need of Jesus. Yes, he can help us in our everyday life. Yes, he can heal pain and suffering. But ultimately, 
forgiveness from the king is what matters. So the question is this. When we get to this point, what are we to do? What were the crowds to do in this story and all the other crowds and all the other accounts in the Gospels? And what was I to do that Tuesday evening when the penny finally dropped and I realised that I did indeed believe that this Jesus is the Son of God, he died for my sins, he was offering me forgiveness and entry into his kingdom. Well, Matthew, the author of this gospel, reveals exactly what we're to do by giving his own personal testimony. Uh, We didn't read it, but let's let's read verse 9 at the end of our passage. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew followed Jesus and became his disciple. Matthew, a despised tax collector, a sinner, is invited into the divine presence of the king in the kingdom of heaven. And he accepts that invitation because he recognised that Jesus is king. What amazing grace. And if anyone has any doubt as to whether they are worthy of being in Jesus' presence, flip across the page, let's read verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what that means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, the sin doctor, confirms he has come to perform miracles in the heart. He has come for those dying in their sin. And he is here to heal. And that can be true for all who do as Matthew does and follows Jesus. That was my story. That is the story of many in this room. And it's the story of millions over the centuries. We have left our life of sin to serve and to worship the king. And if you are yet to do this, or you're sitting on the fence, or you want to, but just haven't taken that leap of faith yet, Trust him, pray to him, ask for his forgiveness and invite him into your life as your king. He won't let you down. That's what I did nine years ago and my life was transformed overnight. And in my weakness, I bring my worship and my praise daily as his disciple, striving to be obedient, to honour him, and to be more like him. Which, brothers and sisters, we know that's not easy, don't we? We know it's not easy. I can't tell you how often I survey my life, my thoughts, my deeds, and my heart, and I still question, why me, Jesus? You know how bad I am, and I can't hide it from you, but you still show me grace. You still use me in your kingdom. Little sinful me. 
even now, you use me to speak to your precious children. Why? Verse 13. Jesus desires mercy. He delights, he delights to forgive sinners. It's what his heart desires. It's just so reassuring, isn't it? And that is why we follow this Jesus. And as one writer says, we only truly experience the full power of Jesus' divine mercy to us by following him and becoming his disciple. So Christian, keep going. Whatever pain or suffering you are currently feeling, keep following the one who not only claims he can forgive sins, he proved it. And continue trusting that you now have that sure hope of a future with him forever. So bow down and worship and praise him. And as we close, I I do hope the time we've spent in these two chapters has been as helpful and useful to you as it has been for me, and I'm sure John, as we studied them. And there is so much more in these two chapters alone that we couldn't touch on as time wouldn't allow. But the next time that we pick up Matthew, we will be as Jesus sends out his disciples into the mission field. Let's just quickly read the end of chapter 9, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Let's not wait until our next sermon series in Matthew. The time is now. Let us, his disciples, go into the harvest fields of Banstead and proclaim the one who has the authority and the desire to forgive sinners and welcome them into his kingdom. Let's pray. Merciful Lord and Saviour, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy on us sinners. We thank you that you you went to the cross and that you have dealt with our biggest problem, our rejection of a holy God. And thank you that because of your sacrifice, we can be brought back into relationship with you. And we're so sorry for the times that we forget that and that we, we don't follow you and we, and we return to a life of sin. But thank you for your mercy on us. Help us to trust you and to keep following you all of our days until we are with you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, We're going to stand and sing our final song now as the band comes back up. Um, And we're going to sing of the one who took our sins away as we behold the Lamb.